You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone uh, with Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity, and Mage. Sam hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King's School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, UK, studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He is the author of Tantric Thalema and the History of Theurgy from Yamblikas to the Golden Dawn. We'll get started with that conversation after a short musical break. Musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Mondo Head, featuring music composed in collaboration by Kodo, Mickey Hart, and others. This track is called Psychopomp.
This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Delightful to be here. We're actually in the studio today. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity and Mage. Sam hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King School of Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, UK, studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. Sam is an adept of the Golden Dawn, a co-founder of the Katonic Iranian Templar Order, and an initiate of Wiccan, Druidic, Buddhist, Hindu, and Masonic traditions. His work has been published in journals such as Green Egg and Gnosis, and 2010 saw his first book, Tantric Thalema, establishing publishing house Concrescent Press. In 2001, he founded the Open Source Order of the Golden Dawn, and in 2013, founded the Pantheon Foundation. Sam serves the pagan community as a priest of Hermes. Sam Webster, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you so very much for having me, Stuart. Oh, it's it's a delight to get a chance to talk to you again, and we're finding, uh, strangely, that it's uh, a lot easier to find guests at home these days for the show. So. How shocking. Yes. How shocking. Well, um, hi, Rob. Hi, it's good to hear your voice. And um, before uh, we get going into um, other topics, I I just wanted to to, um, ask you if there's any recent notable developments since we've spoken with you. It wasn't that many months ago that we had uh, you on the air, but um, but life goes on, and uh, maybe there's something that you want to catch people up. Um, on that you've been up to or not up to? Well, um, uh, it's mostly been the same. I think I, last time we spoke, I talked about that the uh, open source order of the Golden Dawn came to its uh, gentle conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the adepts have gone on to other work, and we have ended the school after about 20 years with work, and that was a big shift, but it was time. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, we're, the adepts are going on and continuing their writing, we're going to be producing a new edition of Tantric Philema oh. with contributions from all the adepts, and we hope to have that out by the end of the year. Oh, awesome. And then we're working on, and in parallel, uh, a complete collection of our open source order of the Golden Dawn material. We're going to be publishing all our rituals, our ritual commentaries, um, all of our side rituals, as well as we uh, think they are well and worthy and safe to produce, and many of the commentaries that we've developed over time, and the adepts of the um, uh, uh, the adepts, before they become an adept, have to each produce a thesis, and the best of those we're going to be publishing as well. Huh. Mostly what we're trying to do is document the work that we did so that other people can advance with it as they so choose. Well, that's interesting. So, so that I, I didn't know that um, wannabe adepts would have to um, uh, produce a thesis. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that so I, I'm clear on um, what that what that would look like? Sure, fair question. Um, throughout the Golden Dawn, uh, seven rituals that one has to go through in the process. Between each ritual, there's a test, and it's mostly an intellectual test. But those tests improve in, in intensity over time, 
and uh, also there are more and more um, skills and practices one has to master and demonstrate mastery of. But after you've gotten through all of them up to the sixth ritual called the portal, which is sort of the threshold of adeptship, literally, mm-hmm. um, one of the things you have to do is go back and write a thesis on the ritual. So you go back through all of the rituals as you receive them and pick some point of analysis. We've had people go through and look at all the titles and names. We've had people look at the geometric structures and the energetic forms in the halls. Others in varying different kinds of focus and capacities to try to, um, uh, what can we learn? Or what did, you know, the student learn uh, from the ritual? That it's an excellent way of preparing them to eventually being a hierophant of the order. Wow, interesting. So maybe uh, it's also an interesting question for listeners not so familiar with this tradition. What adeptship or adepthood uh, entails because I think in sort of the western model of uh, religion time and service tends to be the uh, uh, test for whether someone advances in a, uh, uh, a clergy position or or if they know people and are they're good politically but here you're describing something that is uh, more objective more, more like a, uh, a mastery of a um, technical or uh, uh, a literary subject in a university where you have to demonstrate something. Or maybe maybe the better analog- uh, analogy would be more like a musician. You have to be able to demonstrate that you can actually uh, do something. So maybe could you talk a little bit about that just to... Sure, sure. Well, yes. Um, I think the musician analogy is really quite apt. Um, and we would identify with it because a whole bunch of our people are musicians, sound engineers, and geeks. So skills count, or as we put it, using stealing from the musicians, chops matter. If you got your skills, it's a whole different thing than just somebody who knows a bunch of intellectual material. But the first order, the uh, Golden Dawn is divided up into what's called two orders. Actually, it's three. Um, the third one is debatable whether or not anyone can achieve that in the flesh, but some people think you can. Um, the second order uh, is specifically of the adepts, and the first order is of all those people who are aspiring to it. And as uh, members of the first order, they go through the neophyte ritual, and then four elemental rituals, then the portal ritual, and then the adept ritual. And uh, in the process, they have to pass these intellectual tests and do certain uh, ritual activities at certain levels of practice. For instance, the basic ritual that every everyone in the Western tradition pretty much learns that's more or less off the golden dawn is the lesser mashing ritual, the pentagram, which is very rarely taught correctly because it's mostly, oh, yes, wave your arms around and say these words and what wonderful things will happen. Well, that's kind of like handing somebody a trombone who's never played an instrument before and say, here, go play this. It's not going to come out sounding very pretty. But after, uh, well, what we require of people is after they have learned the ritual, then they have to go through a period of time where they do it three times a day for 30 days in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a five-minute ritual. That's not really that much of a burden. But the skill jump that occurs then is enormous. And we just listen to, oh, so how is your practice going? And they start telling us certain things, and like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's working. That's very good. You're getting your skills together. And we continue advancing them through different other kinds of practices along the way. Uh, this is really important because ultimately an adept, uh, when, when duly qualified, uh, is going to be running the hall, running the ritual space of our monthly meetings where we open up the hall of the neophytes, which is this elaborate ritual, and then we initiate people, which is, again, another elaborate ritual. That isn't, it's not, 
The Catholic Church came up with this marvelous idea called ex opere operato when they got into trouble one time, and uh, it basically meant that the ritual is more powerful than the sanctity and and the preparedness of the priest person leading it. Um, <clears throat> we beg to differ. If you ain't got the skills, it's not really going to work very well. And doing uh, the ritual is kind of like being the conductor of a small symphony. You have to run the whole place with all these different, uh, 11 different officers, each doing different things, and they all need to do them correctly, and you need to guide that process, and you need to be able to hold the energetic space of the hall in, in, in its entirety. And that's not some vague uh, notion. That is being able to visualize both the physical plane aspects of the hall and thus not run into people, but also there is a, a symbolic overlay on the hall that you also have to be holding in your mind, and that takes a lot of practice. And holding your own overlay over your own body. And that's where the Tantric Salima practices come from, putting on the god form of Rahorquit, the Salemic uh, primary deity, and uh, <clears throat> holding that in its full energetic form, wielding the form and force of the deity in the ritual so as to be able to deliver the initiatory current and actually manage to initiate the aspirant. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Thank you. That's That, that helps me understand also... Um, the um, depth of the thesis that you were that you were speaking of, because if people are going through um, the process that you just enumerated and described, they're going to have a much greater familiarity with uh, th- than simply an intellectual understanding, and 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 that then is a different foundation than people going to an ordinary university, a different foundation for being able to creatively um, analyze what what was happening um, as they were going through their training. Is that is that a fair fair way very, to describe very. it? So they are starting to do that during their educational process, but when they come to this, they go, wait a minute. Oh, I'm seeing patterns and structures that I never saw before when I was immersed in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rituals have them. They're actually astonishingly well-structured, um, but that's not really very obvious on the front end. And after a while, even the, the, the first layer of structure becomes kind of normal, so you stop seeing it. But when you look back and how all of the pieces are constructed as portions of a whole, you then realize that those very structures are kind of like uh, um, um, uh, uh, tinker toys. They all kind of fit together yeah. uh, in the end, and um, each contributing differently. And that's part of the virtue of the Golden Dawn, is it creates a summa of so much of the Western esoteric tradition and feeds it to you in a charged and highly empowered space, so then all these things become meaningful and empowered and accessible. And and one question um, I have that in in some of the traditions of, of magical work that I've I've actually personally uh, practiced I've found there's an emphasis on allowing and the concept is that you know you're not really doing something I mean in fact if you try to assert your will in the energetic space it's a um, uh, it's problematic and again I think the analogy to music is very apt here because it's it's similar to what I get from my music teacher for you know when I uh, train with Shakuhachi which is that 
you know, my mind can be can hold the, the do certain formal things, but it's not making something happen. So it's responsible and it's kept busy by keeping my attention on structural things, as it were, to uh, mm-hmm. in the ritual space to do the thing appropriately. But the 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 music happens when something larger than myself moves into the space or moves through me in in that process. Is that uh, uh, analogous to the process that you're talking about? Yes, I think it is. Um, the it is the continual problem of all performative activities. Um, uh, old Uncle Al, Alistair Crowley, came up with a, an excellent uh, uh, imagery around this, talking about a willed action using the uh, framework of golf. And it's like when you're not a particularly skilled golfer, you go up to the ball and you whack it, and it kind of goes down the road. And you kind of walk down and you hit it again for a while. Um, eventually, maybe you take some lessons or do a lot of practice, and you get feeling, and you get really concentrating. And some of the time, you can actually hit the ball pretty straight. But then there comes the day when tons of practice has already been done and you're not struggling with that and you just do it. And it seems completely natural. It seems like you're not even there. And that's when the ball just sails off to where it belongs. And so there's this whole level of building up all this skill and then forgetting about it. Yeah. So you can just do it. And I've, I've sat with a new hierophant terrified when they're first leading their own ritual and said, look, you've been through this enough time. Now that you've done all your practice areas, forget about it. Have fun. Just relax. Don't worry if you screw it up. All these people are skilled and they're your friends. They'll laugh. You'll laugh. You'll go back to work and continue. And just relax and do it. And all too often, that's when the ritual just comes to life. Well, thank you for uh, bringing that element in because I think um, when people think – uh, think about magical rituals. A sense of humor is probably the last thing they uh, um, imagine um, being injected um, into that, or or being allowed into that space. So I, I appreciate that um, that you're um, acknowledging that that's a, that's an important element here. Absolutely. Um, we <sighs> humor plus discipline makes something wonderful and powerful. Um, when we rehearse our rituals, which we do, especially the larger and more complicated ones, they, they take a good walkthrough. Um, part of the game we play is, can you goof on the traditional script well enough to keep us all uh, lightly amused and yet hit all of the necessary marks uh, to hold the structure? Mm-hmm. And so we play this game while you're doing while we're doing it, and everyone so I stop, stop. I got to read the actual thing. This one's going to be hard for me, so they'll actually read it as the as the scripture, as the um, the script, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in ritual, we then make sure we inject a mild degree of amusement to be able to be relaxed and present and at play, and that lets everything flow through. Quite frankly, this is not dissimilar from what we are taught about, you know, in, in the literature about the Jedi versus, say, the Sith. The Sith draw upon their anger and their violence, their rage and all that, and they use that to empower themselves so that they can fight their battles against whoever they're trying to conquer this week. But the Jedi, on the other hand, take this lightly amused attitude, which all the people who have ever taught me psychic stuff said, this is the attitude you need to take if you want anything psychic to happen. As far as I can tell, they're quite right. 
if you can take that mildly amused attitude towards pretty much everything going on, no matter how horrific it may be, you're present, you're attentive, you have your full energy about you, and you can wield your strength in that moment. Thank you. That that uh, that element of relaxation that allows for that that you mentioned, um, I think, is a key is a key thing. And and um, and goodness knows, uh, humor is well known to provide that that um, release of tension, and that's Indeed. important. <clears throat> but that 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 cultivation of that uh, attitude is is one of the skills I imagine that you're describing here, right? Indeed. Indeed. We can be all very solemn and everything, but we also know that that can become morbid. And the combination of a relaxed attitude can let us not focus on the pain, but focus on the compassion. Can we really be compassionate in this moment if we're just caught up in our anger, our pain? There's plenty of reason to. I mean, look at the current situation. We could all be very upset. But instead, taking a relaxed attitude towards it, it reduces stress and allows power to flow. Yeah, and that and that's... When you were just saying that earlier, I was uh, immediately going to the current pandemic situation and what that, how people are re- responding to that. And I, I wanted to get your take on a, a magical approach to that or a uh, uh, a pagan approach to P- the well, pagan pandemic approach. Yeah, the p- pagan <laughs> pandemic approach. Well, uh, it's not the, like we don't have a lot of experience if you think about it. I mean, if we talk about like the ancient people. Um, there's a wonderful book called Against the Grain. I'm forgetting the author, but he's talking about how cities first formed. And we tend to think of like, oh, we've discovered how to make bread. Let's all form together in a big city and these big fields of wheat and all this kind of stuff, and it'll all be great. And the the evidence does not actually support the idea that people thought well of cities originally. They were having a good time out in the boonies where there was plenty of a bar culture going on, and they were having a fine time. But it's kind of more imperial type behavior that gathered people together, forced them to work on the farms and create these things. And you know what would happen? Plague. Hmm. We find from the uh, the uh, archaeology of the old cities that you have city built, then suddenly it's abandoned for, you know, 50 years, and then they build it again. Each of those abandoning is not because they got conquered by some other force. They got conquered by a disease, and they all scattered to the boonies again. Yeah, that's, that's happened. Normal. That's hap- That's happened time and again over. Uh, yeah. um, and and sometimes it's it's as in the New World, um, which was depopulated by plagues that the um, population was uh, not prepared to fight. Their bodies uh, didn't have any resistance. Um, that's what made uh, um, conquering um, North and South America a relatively simple task. Yep. Not, not so yeah. much the technology. No, no. I mean, it's some vast portion of the population died off in those things. It's just horrific. Right. And so they weren't there to defend themselves against uh, the intruders. Yeah. But from a a, a, a energetic point of view, uh, there there is... A lot of people, you know, musing about balancing forces or this is Earth's response. And, you know, I don't even I, – that makes sense at a certain level. At another yeah. level, it, it it also makes sense that eventually, you know, you keep rolling the dice with mutations of a virus, and eventually you're going to get one that 
has all the ingredients for the particular dynamic of communication that we're seeing now. Yep. And it's not yeah, like we haven't seen good. others that were a little less efficient. This one, this one is particularly efficient because it's, yeah. um, it seems to be transmissible during a long symptomatic, asymptomatic period so that no one knows they have it and they pass it on before uh, they, anyone realizes they're sick. Right. Pretty, pretty difficult. So um, let's, let's look at this from the spiritual perspective. Um, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't have those knowledges. I mean, I'm doing my reading, and like, like so many people are, it's like, wow, this is an amazing, amazing disease. But I'm not really competent to discuss that end of things. And I know that's why you didn't call me. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this from the spiritual dimension. And there's several different really important aspects of this that I think we need to, to look at. First off, and I haven't heard anyone yet mention this, and I've been asking my friends, have you heard, have, no one, no one is saying this? Wow, okay, so here, Priest of Hermes is announcing to the community here this really important thing that no one seems to be noticing. This is called liminal space. <laughs> we are in the threshold. We are not, we have entered onto it. Everything has stopped. All of the old rules no longer apply. The new rules have not yet come into force. We are in the in-between place right now, and we need to wake up to this because everything is important in here right now. Is it uh, important in the sense that in these in this shadow space, uh, uh, in this liminal space, as you call it, are we... Is it the case that there is great opportunity for uh, uh, unleashing new patterns or new rules in um, what comes after? Exactly. Think about it. Uh, Isaac Newton fled uh, London as a young man because of plague. He sat out on his uh, family's um, uh, property out in the country and invented almost everything that we know about him. He figured out gravity. He did, worked on optics. Calculus was developed then, and most of his other major theories. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, like is normal to um, uh, scientific brilliance, it often starts in youth, and then you develop it the rest of your life. That's literally when he came up with it. So we should take some heart from that and from all the other people who, oh, when I was out sitting around, the Decameron was written because they were waiting around for plague, you know. Um, they left Rome to uh, to uh, be in the country and hopefully not die, and we wrote the, ca the Cameron. Uh, all these other different great pieces of literature, writing, and art were, were created when we had to stop. Now, ever since I was aware enough to figure it out, it has been obvious to me that I'm, the civilization that I'm a member of, that I live in, has been like driving, riding on a train headed towards the canyon, and the bridge is out. <laughs> Ever since I was a child, it's been obvious that this is the case. And what I have prayed for most of my life is, will you people stop a minute and think? Well, we're at the threshold now. And oddly enough, my entire world has stopped. And there's a whole lot of people doing what you do when you stop. They're sleeping later, they're drinking more, they're eating more, they're making good food, they're sitting, they're talking with their, their, their near and dears, and now we also have the Internet and all these other great communication methods. So they're Zooming with everybody and Skyping and so forth, and they're all talking. And they're sitting and having to think. 
wonderful. Because now they're going to ask themselves the question, when it's time to go back to it, do I really want to be doing that anymore? Is that the right thing? I mean, I got to I got to eat. I got to live. But there's a whole bunch of problems out there, and there's a whole bunch of why this was wrong, and they know it. They feel it every day they go to work. They feel it in the world as we're living it, and they will know. And so we're hearing tick up in the labor movement, all the people who are on the front line saying, wait a minute, I'm doing all this stuff. I, I'm an emergency. Uh, I'm, I'm an ambulance driver. I'm getting 15 bucks an hour, and I'm carting around people who are possibly going to kill me. And I'm hanging out in places that are deadly. That's not enough money. And how many other people are in that condition? How many, all, the, all the physicians and so forth. Well, maybe they're getting paid decently, but how about the janitors? You know, they're still making the 15 bucks an hour cleaning up after our messes, and they're being all exposed. So what are these people going to do? Well, when we get to the end of it, they say, okay, everybody go back to work. I can imagine them all just saying, we're sitting down. We're sitting down on our workstations, we're sitting down on the machinery, and we're saying, this is not moving. I mean, that's how the labor movement worked. Oh, you know, funny thing, it was 100 years ago this year. In the 1920s, the labor movement became the dangerous and deadly thing it was. That led to people actually getting paid enough. It will end up leading to second world war as well all of these people in grievous condition the 1920s except for the civil war and until the second world war was the most bloody decade in american history more people were killed and they were killed in labor actions hmm. usually by a bunch of pinkertons coming in and killing off people by the dozen there's some great colorado uh, i think it is um mining camp where the miners said no and they brought in people with guns and just killed them. Well, you're making me think of uh, uh, a comparison with the uh, what we now know as the second bubonic plague in Europe. The first being the Justinianic plague oh, in yeah. like the 500s, 530s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, of course, the famous one uh, in the 1340s, late, th late 1340s that, that we know of, um, of course, it's it, it had a huge impact, uh, mortality impact on the population um, for a variety of reasons because the population of Europe was already um, at the edge of com carrying capacity with worsening climate and stuff like that. But but um, although we have those same conditions today, uh, of course, generated by human-induced climate change in some ways. In any event. Um, after uh, the first round of plague and then the continuing revisitations over the next um, decades, the um, situation vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the elites and the peasants changed dramatically because there weren't enough workers to make the, um, viable the former economic system and those workers had more power. So what I'm hearing from you, um, if I'm not mistaken, is is the notion that there are some parallels here, in that um, in that people are perhaps by stopping in the way that you're describing, as we're all stopped 
compared to what's what we normally would be up to. It's leading to an opportunity or giving people an opportunity to question whether what they had been doing in the headlong rush of our um, amazingly uh, uh, thoughtless culture in a lot of ways, now they're asking some questions about how they want to live their lives and how that, they want that to work. And that's uh, that's an interesting parallel to me. It's not it's mm-hmm. by no means exact, but no. there are but there are resonances, I think. Well, it's good that we're not quite so deadly that we yes. have better information <laughs> sources all those kinds of, of things. And maybe it won't require like wiping out so much of the labor force that the ones who are left saying no, you're going to be paying me more for this. Uh, but we have this opportunity that to stop and think. Now, some of this is really immediate for me, not so much the stopping and thinking part. I'm an introvert. I, I, I will spend time just sitting in my chair, staring at the walls, and I consider that a great time because all of the stuff going on in my mind is far more entertaining than any, any television show or anything. And also, given that I work uh, stuff that requires intense concentration, getting to relax and play with my mind is, is very refreshing and, and recreational and, and so forth. But another dimension that I've discovered in this situation living here in the city, I mean, I'm, I'm right, right on the San Francisco Bay. Uh, my, my, I, I overlook it up here in Richmond, and I've been embedded in this city for the last five years. I've commuted two hours down into Belmont and back again, got to know Bart all too well, uh, and Caltrain and all that. And finally, uh, my company accidentally I decided to go 100% remote, so we were already adapted to Mm. uh, working at home, so that's been pretty good for us. Mm -hmm. But I've also found something very weird in my own psyche in this situation. Normally, I carry a fair degree of anxiety and depression all the time. I just have to live with it. I just have to deal with it. I I treat it with 5-HTP and make sure my serotonin levels are up. I have to be very disciplined about my mind and and making sure I get enough exercise and activity and those those kinds of things. I'm pretty much okay. Until everybody stopped. And when they did, the depression and the anxiety all backed off. Hmm. And I can feel, I mean, the, the... my training makes me very sensitive to the overall, for lack of a better term, psychic environment. I would say it's the soul of the city and its situation, how it feels. And it's usually pretty tumultuous because there's all kinds of things going on. And it's, it feels like this tower around the city. But now it, that tower has collapsed and it's just become this kind of low cloud of, of activity around the city. And it's so much more calm that it's, nowhere near impacting me like it used to. That's the point they're going, when this goes back on, I may need to leave the city because that'll be a lot more comfortable for me. That's really interesting. I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, um, I don't know what, what exactly is the appropriate term for, for uh, my situation, which is that I live in a sort of suburban slash exurban uh, context um, and go three miles, my commute is three miles to a t- to a small town, uh, Sebastopol, and and I notice. I mean, there's a, there's a definite. Uh, there has been um, a noticeable difference between the, those two, the psychic environment in each of those um, contexts. It's not that there's no psychic 
background noise, if you will, in the um, uh, in the country outside town. But there's a definite difference uh, going in, and and as as you seem to be pointing out, and I hadn't I hadn't really uh, put much attention on it. Now there's very little difference, or re- relatively little difference, compared to before, between mm-hmm. those two those two contexts. Yeah, that that feel that feeling. I have to deal with the psychic energies of all places that I live in and uh, wherever I go. And this is, this is really marked mm-hmm. now that this has changed. Right. And literally the deeper, a lot of the empathic stuff that I experience is, um, it feels at first like my own emotions. And then I've learned after many years of, of self-examination, oh, wait a minute, that one's not one of mine. Whose is that? Um, and kind of this just general angst has always been down there. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of used to it. It's well cataloged. I understand what it is. I understand where it's from, or so I thought I did. And when this pressure was down, it, it is, I, I can't find it. It's like it's not even it's not even down in the basement anymore. So right. um, I'm pretty excited by that reality. So, uh, how, however, what it really keys into is how liminal this moment is. Mm-hmm. It is precious. Mm-hmm. We need to be grabbing this moment, each every individual in their own way, and figuring out how do we want to come out of this. What is the civilization we want to build? Because this is initiation. Our species has been going through its adulthood initiation crisis for some time, and now we've gotten up to the point where death is at the door. And that's, you know, no initiation really quite cuts it unless you're terrified enough you think you're going to die. And... Uh, we managed to pull that off even in our very symbolic kinds of rituals. I've watched people shaking coming up to the altar. Um, we don't threaten them in any way, but that's a, that we're doing our job if they're terrified when they step up, and then we bring them peace. Um, our species, our civilization is terrified right now, and good, it should be. It needs to wake up. And with that edge of terror, with the edge of realizing just how much is at risk, how much can be lost, mm-hmm. There and in that moment, we can lay aside. We finally have the motivation to put aside our, our presuppositions, our expectations of how the world is supposed to be, and ask ourselves the real question, what, what is it we want? Because in initiation, something always dies. So what are we killing off today? And what is going to be born? What are we going to make? That is the question. I... You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I also see in the loud voices in the media now that the 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 same arguments seem to be going on. And and what's what's occurs to me is that there's this you know the polarization that we've been experiencing, which I think in some ways is a manifestation of this kind of pre-initiatory phase that. Um, you're describing this polarization still has you know this uh, us in this fight of like uh, either you save lives or, or you wreck the economy or something like that and 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 it's like i haven't heard very many people you know step up and say you know that axis doesn't have to be that axis i mean it's, it's possible to have a robust healthy society that has uh controls in place such that People can prosper even when there is a mass 
pandemic and that the safety nets are strong enough to uh, uh, account for that, and people can still, uh, you know, have a reasonably uh, robust economic system. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I think maybe that conversation will uh, 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 come out of this. I, I think it, it's interesting that this is happening in an election year because, uh, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a very loud election because of the oh, yeah. the uh, personalities involved and. What makes this uh, such a uh, richly liminal is that no one knows what's going to happen. Nope. Nope. No one really knows. And and there are these very effective, powerful forces of hypnosis that have large tracts of people um, uh, mesmerized by a kind of a, f- a formulaic uh, understanding of what's going on. I'd like to talk about some of those things, too, because they are part of this initiatory process. Yeah, and uh, part of what we have to do is understand the stories that we're in the midst of, so as to be able to navigate them properly. There's a couple of elements of that that I want to come to. First off, um, just so that you um, understand how deeply solemn I am, um, to understand that we have this strange phenomenon of all these people who are protesting uh, the self quarantine, yeah. and they're mm-hmm. gathering in great numbers in well, actually not very great numbers as we know, but very closely packed. In Michigan, in Los Angeles, in D.C., in Texas, I believe. Texas, yes, yes. Well, you see, if they were a little bit more spiritually developed and they had uh, spiritual vision, not just physical vision, they would look up and they would see the great and holy fish Darwin hanging over their heads. Darwin, (laughs) the great wrathful and compassionate spiritual being, appears to uh, the spiritual sight as a vast fish with a great gaping jaws and legs, of course. You've seen <laughs> it on the back of cars. Of course, of course. yes. And, and, and floats over the heads of the stupid. Because, you see, of all things, even the Buddha taught this, the, the greatest source of suffering is stupidity. And those are the things that uh, people then offer themselves up on the altar of stupidity by gathering in these occasions so as to be taken away by the great and holy fish Darwin uh, for their stupidity. And this will probably shift uh, the bell curve of human intelligence a few points to the uh, higher side just as we conclude this process of um, getting rid of the stupid? I mean, seriously. These are people gathering next to each other, virtually spitting upon each other and all their uh, horror and anger and all this kind of stuff, and they're going to go home, and in two weeks, half of them will be dead. This is insane. So, I like to think of the great holy fish coming for them uh, to take away the stupid, because otherwise it's very hard for me to uh, even imagine these people with their insane lack of understanding of basic science and hygiene. Yeah. And, though, uh, it's possible that if the nature of the virus is such that the, you know, the asymptomatic and mild symptoms are sufficiently large, that um, uh, it may not be the case that many of those people suffer the consequences of that in 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 the way that we're describing, which will only make them double down on treating this as sort of like this generation's Y2K situation. And it's a... Oh, well, we'll see, though. That's the, yeah. the, the problem is, is that we don't know now. Yeah, we don't and, know. 
we've got some pretty amazing next couple of months in front of us as people are sorting their way through that. Yeah. However, um, I'd also like to bring up um, another traditional uh, approach towards dealing with plague. Um, we, we have uh, a chief executive in this country who uh, regularly likes to claim his authority and uh, the vast powers that he has to uh, make things happen or not happen and such. And it's really quite interesting. It's, it's kind of clear that he doesn't want to be president. He'd like to be king. I have a suggestion. Why do we let him be king <laughs> for a day? And then let us conclude that day with the traditional thing that is done uh, with kings during times of plague and sacrifice him to the gods we've managed to piss off so much. He'll get to have his day as king, and... Everyone will be happy. Everyone will be happy, and maybe even he'll be a sufficient uh, uh, offering to the gods and yeah. they'll relent. But, uh, you know, he would feel so much better and serve his public purpose so much more effectively that yeah. way. Well, I mean, I, I think that... Thanks for the solemnity, by yeah, the way. Yes. <laughs> We're being very solemn now. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think actually, though, the analogy of our, our current president is not unlike the uh, the way a virus operates in in the sense that you know here's someone who's largely driven by mechanical factors, yet the makeup of his particular set of factors was so perfectly tuned for the country as it was that. You know, he he's come in in this weird kind of mesmer like power, and you know has managed to get you know forty percent of the uh, electorate, you know, uh, just uh, you know being true believers. You know, it's like it's like a cult figure, yeah. and, it, and it is astonishing. And 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 yet it, it it's not unlike you know it's it's like there was a a key. You know, there was like this this uh, way in which people were waiting for that, and this yep. this key came in and filled that, and and I don't. It's a strange time, and it, it it's a I I agree with you that we're working some very powerful, uh, titanic forces out right now, and mm-hmm. and I think the this uh, pandemic is bringing that to the surface and i think there is an opportunity and that kind of gets us back to the you know the question of you know as an individual as someone who is um you know sheltering from home you know mm-hmm. we we do our part by trying to limit our uh uh you know, social network as it were and, and to limit limit transmission of um of, of a disease but energetically um how do, how would you recommend someone use this liminal time what 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 thought forms should we be putting out what uh what can we offer from ourselves energetically to the uh the greater space that can contribute to this psychic conversation that's going on well i'd like to return to uh, our friend there in washington in a bit but the question that you just raised is the most important one what can we be doing We need to remember that we're in this together. We need to remember, even in our isolation, we are not alone. We can't be. We're part of the biome. We're part of this entire system of world, and we're adjusting it to try to not transmit this one particular piece of information that can kill you moving around in it. So what we've been doing since uh, since when 
lockdown started was every night lighting a lamp. And we light that lamp on, on our well, on dinner table, house altar, sometimes just in front of the television set because it's the altar of these, of these days. Um, and we say the following. All light is one light. All fire is one fire. All people, one people. And then we light the lamp and say, light of peace, lamp of learning, fire of solidarity. We remember, we remember, we remember. And I take that moment to stretch out with my mind and soul and touch my neighbors, everyone in my watershed, everyone in my town, everyone in my city, in my region, my state, my nation, my world. I reach out and touch all the minds and souls that I can, human and otherwise, and remember we are in this together. We can survive this. We can grow stronger on this. We can make our world better for this. You've just repeated a. Um, you you had a Facebook post a, a number of weeks ago, which of course you've just essentially recapitulated here, and I found it. You know, I, I've I've enacted it and um, and found it to be um, a really lovely um, response, actually, to what's to um, to what's going on because it 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 strikes a different note than the habitual. Um, scurrying around um, uh, like a chicken with its head cut off kind of res- initial response that so many people have um, have been have, have 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 found themselves only able to do. So um, it's it collects the mind um, and it points the heart. Um, so so thank you for that. By the way, thank you. It's very gratifying to hear. I'm assuming that this this was this was a prayer that that either you you were inspired by your work to do, or inspired by perhaps um, something more. So, uh, can you talk about that just briefly? Well, it draws from a number of different places. Um, the, the idea of a, a hearth lamp and so forth, uh, the lamp of Hestia, the fire of Hestia, is, is an old idea within uh, the Greek world uh, in the um, uh, uh, Inuit culture, uh, to, to start a household, you have to go and make a lamp and that becomes the lamp that you keep going so that you always have fire. I didn't, such. I didn't know that, but that, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. The young men have to travel down and get the right kind of stone and then come back mm-hmm. and carve it and make a beautiful lamp. Right. Um, the, the lamp of learning has always been there. It's this image of the scholar studying. And since there was so much ignorance going on, let us learn, let us remember to learn. Um, but part of it is the reality of what light and fire both are. Um, they are, to some extent, not really substances. Light is a weird one. Maybe substance, maybe wave. Oh, what? Um, but it is essentially the same everywhere. It is a kind of thing that wherever there is light, it is all light and all connection with each other. And so it is with fire. You touch fire to another fire, which is the original fire, which is uh, which is the derived fire. Um, we find commonality in this substance, this process, this thing before us that has a unity to it by its nature. And so are we as people. We are 
we are all one species. We can talk about races all we want, but that's kind of silly. We know biologically that that's kind of meaningless. Uh, but we are one people. And really, right now, we need the solidarity of all of us working together to stop this. Even if it means going home and doing nothing, we need to stop. Well, but that's the point here, is that you're not just going and doing nothing. You're actually introducing a ritual to affirm solidarity as well. I mean, that's that to me is kind of the the key feature of this of this uh, ritual prayer that that you just uh, uh, repeated earlier. And 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 it seems to me that that's um, that's something that can resonate in people's hearts and minds, but also at a psychic level. Mm-hmm. As you're as you're suggesting, and this is and this I'm suggesting for people for whom exercising, if you will, uh, the, the muscle of the psyche is uh, is unfamiliar or, or may is likely to be unfamiliar for so many. Exactly. So a physical symbol like lighting a lamp, mm-hmm. it's an action. So we're doing something. So we get the good karma from trying a good intention and actually doing an act. Mm-hmm. So it's driven all the way onto the physical plane. We light a flame. And then we remember that flame and that light. And how many times have we all seen flames? How many times have we all seen light? And all those moments come together. And the glory when other people are also doing this. There's a fair number of people in my community who have taken it up. And I get these little posts on Facebook as people send me little pictures of their uh, candles and lamps burning and so forth. Yes, we are remembering. We are remembering. And that care for each other, the practice of compassion, it's a doing it's not a not a sentiment, not just a feeling, but a willed action to recognize the suffering of others and want to do something about that. Therein is real power, real change, real transformation. If we come out of this with greater solidarity, it will have been worth it. Yeah, one one aspect of this that um, we may want to get into in the next hour is that. You know, so much of the polarized political conversation is um, different parties reacting to each other. And the nature of polarization is that, you know, the more you react to each other, it's kind of like the Chinese finger puzzle. You know, you're you're pulling and pulling, but you're you're just, you're kind of locked in this uh, uh, argument that doesn't permit any other possibilities. And so it's like right or wrong. And a liminal moment is an opportunity to actually conceive of a different, like, you know, instead of resp- reacting to someone, um, but really think, how do I want the world to be? How could the world be? How could the world be now that, that would create a different outcome for so many people who are suffering right now? And, there's lots of people who, you know, are, don't have the luxury of working from home, you know, and don't have the luxury of having a job that's tied to an essential service yep. that that are in a, you know, it's more than liminal there. It's, it's you know, survival. Yep. Why why is it that the, um, uh, uh, the landlords get to evict someone because they can't pay their rent? Why shouldn't the landlord not give money? But then mm-hmm. the, the landlord is probably paying rent to someone else, you know, so it goes up the chain. And, and, and yep. so it's like all of this is a system, and we could have a different system that has a different uh, 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 
more balance to it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think we can offer up as a as a creative vision that might come out of this space. Well, if we don't know that we're in this together, we're going to need to learn that before we go too far. Yeah. Because we are. And if we all stop, okay, stop all rent, stop all mortgage payments, stop all debt like that, and we have to hold here for the time being. Let's make sure everybody's fed. Let's make sure people have the basic cares they need because we all need to simply wait. Yeah. Then an enormous amount of suffering could be brought to a halt. But liminal spaces come out of maladaption. They come from not being able to make the transition to the next thing. And they come when whatever adaptions, whatever ways we are, are not working. Yeah. And we're stuck. It's like, what do we do now? Well, the situation that we're in is a stupid conflict that won't break until something else changes. The two, two poles of that polarity are really at it with each other. And until something else breaks in there, well, here's something breaking in there. Yes. Well, this is a good place to take a break since we are uh, right at the hour. So I'm going to uh, hand you over to Rob off, off air and do some announcements, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you, Stuart. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity, and Mage. Sam hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, U.K., studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He is the author of Tantric Thalema and The History of Theurgy from Yamblicus to the Golden Dawn. So finally, musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Mondo Head, featuring music composed in collaboration by Kodo, Mickey Hart, and others. This track is called Kashira, and we'll be back in about four minutes.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity, Mage. Sam hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, U.K., studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He's the author of Tantric Thalema and the History of Theurgy from Yumblicus to the Golden Dawn. So... Yeah, we were talking uh, 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 right before the uh, break about uh, you mentioned that when we we find ourselves in a liminal time, this in-between time as a society and as a people, that's usually coming about because the previous habit patterns didn't work, um, and that we're we're kind of like stopped right now um, in this pause to. Uh, uh, have to really figure out new patterns that are going to take us forward. So, so, so uh, yeah, it was. It, it's. I hadn't really thought about that. That 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 it's the lack of uh, things working really that have caused this kind of mass moment. Uh, and it's a it's a kind of a global mass moment, which is uh, yeah, one is. of the remar- remarkable things about it. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, you know, like, how is it, I mean, yeah, I get, maybe you described it earlier by saying that you've always had this sense, since of being a kid, of us, our society as being on this freight train, rushing towards a um, bridge that doesn't exist over a chasm. And um, this this may be, this may not be the big one, it might be just a... Uh, uh, a reverberation that where we have an opportunity to take a different course. Well, this this will not wipe out civilization unless we get really really stupid about it. It's just going to put a dent in things. But those are the first warnings you get. It's like, wow, that's not going to work. Oh, that's not going to be bad. Do we think to change course? And this isn't going to come from leadership. Obviously, we've we've already seen the failure of uh, leadership in our world that's trying to to just get along and, oh, maybe maybe it'll be okay. Uh, no. No, the people are going to have to lead and the people are going to have to step up. Um, I'm hearing about people at um, who are in a nursing home, and they're paid horrible wages. Uh, they did a sick out recently. They stayed out for about two, two, three days, and suddenly the employer is going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, yes, uh, hazard pay. I'll be uh, hazard pay. Come back. I can't run this place. And that's Pretty much what we all need to do to all the various places where people are getting bad wages or bad conditions is to simply say, no, if you, oh, business, want to survive, you actually need to pay me properly. Frankly, I, I think all the people who are working in Amazon need to just sit down, grab a book off the shelf, eat your lunch, <laughs> sit there for a few days, camp out. Those are pretty big warehouses. You could hang out there. There's bathrooms and everything. And just say, hi, Jeff. You know, I, I don't make enough money. I, I, frankly, I don't have bus fare home, so I'm staying here. No, oh, things moving in your warehouses? No, no, that's not going to happen. No. Could you imagine? Yeah, I can. Um, yeah. I also know that uh, colleagues of mine in my professional life, which um, involves um, the development of products that uh, for automation, 
see the outcome of this as being a real boon for the automation for all the reasons that you're so. describing. Yep, yep. Get the humans out of it. Frankly, humans shouldn't be doing those kinds of right. jobs. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. they, that's, it's an embarrassment that we are still using people to do things that machines actually do better. Um, since I'm a manager and I often build systems in, in businesses, one of my moral presumptions is if the human, if the machine can do it better, the machine should be doing that work. Right. And the humans are good for thinking and creating. Let them go do that stuff, interrelating with people and taking care of other living, feeling things. Let the machinery take care of the machinery. Well, I want to I want to uh, uh, switch gears just a little bit um, um, because one of the things that just got brought up uh, after we uh, came back at the top of the hour was a phrase that this is a um, a global mass moment. And it, it it occurred to me that actually, in a way, this is uh, the the most intense global mass moment that the human species has ever experienced. And mm-hmm. there are there are reasons for that. We had this as as people are, of course, uh, writing about now the Spanish influenza, exactly a century ago, or almost exactly a century ago, but. Methods of communication were not what they are now. Uh, uh, the global economy was not um, what it is and has been for decades back then. And so um, uh, even, you know, you, you could arguably say that, say, landing on the moon was an example of, you know, a precursor to a global uh, mass uh, moment. But this is this is different because well, yeah, no right. no pandemic in in you know in history has had um, almost simultaneous effects throughout the planet. I mean, Africa is probably lagging a bit behind by a few months, um, yep. and and so forth. But even the Spanish influenza took longer uh, to travel around the world because people it took people longer to travel you know the vectors of the uh, uh, disease um, took longer to travel around the world so 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 I'm wondering I mean we were talking in the first hour about the psychic environment of uh, our local areas you know I was talking about the difference between the country and a small town you were discussing being in a city and the difference that's happened. I'm wondering if there's a if there's if it's possible to yet it may not be. Um but I'm wondering if you have any sense if it's possible to sort of uh go higher, go to go at a uh, global level yet to the psychic ramifications of uh what we're experiencing. Yeah, I think we need to go there and need to think about it. And those of us who have access to the spiritual and high mental planes uh, need to be paying attention to that because it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my mother uh, told me this story because she read um, interesting scholars like uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Teilhard de Chardin talks about the noosphere, mm-hmm. the, the mind of the planet. And she described, and I don't know if it's actually in, in, in his writings, but she referenced the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy mm. and how 
the whole world stopped with that mm. Mm. and was shocked by it profoundly. That's and everyone a, that's felt a good, together. good example, yeah. Yeah, and because of the uh, television and the media of the time, that's why it went around the planet very quickly. Um, you referenced the moon, uh, the moonshot, and uh, the positive nature of that, uh, the good feelings that were there with it. Um, I was talking with a friend who mentioned 9-11 and its impact. I don't know how national versus global that was, but mm -hmm. here is global. And here this is affecting the mind of all humans on this planet. And mind you, the animals outside are having a great time. I've been <laughs> yeah. watching the, all the animals around my neighborhood you know, just having a great time out there. That's, that's, that's what Stuart was saying. He, uh, he was referencing uh, reports that in national parks, the wildlife is, uh, is resurging into areas where humans have dominated the uh, the uh, contexts. Yeah, so um, I think there's some something there special for us, but we have this moment when we all together are feeling together. I mean, is that not compassion? Feeling with? Yeah. So we have this opportunity to be compassionate with each other and to see the hurt and suffering in each other and to see the possibility and creativity in each other and a chance to do something with that. And that's that's the most exciting and positive part of it to me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of the uh um what I've what I've read about what what what's been happening in the hotspot of New York over the last mm -hmm. month or two where where people I mean I see it on Facebook and whatnot where people go out of there and uh, hang out on their balconies and apartment windows and and um sell at five, at a you know a set time 5 p.m. I believe it is and and uh, celebrate uh, the the frontline workers who are yeah. um, you know helping um, those who are going through the illness and even in our even in our own uh, ex, uh, suburban exurban neighborhood uh, one one of our neighbors um, at 5 p.m. they they happen to have uh, taiko drums because they are part of the yeah. Sonoma County taikos so they're at 5 p.m. Uh, uh, like clockwork, we hear these taiko drums being played uh, even in our uh, semi-rural environment. It's wonderful, actually. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. In New Orleans, musicians are going out and playing each by their own homes and playing. I've been out back and I heard people singing, and so I dragged out my drums and and I there was somebody else out there, no idea where, answering me back. So, you know, hmm. throw a rhythm out and they come back with a rhythm and say, "Oh, let's drum together." I don't know who you are. Maybe we'll meet someday. But other ways of finding solidarity in 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 all of this. I mean, Western civilization. I I, I was at um, was at George Will on the Wapo writing about. Oh, we must not come to communitarian solutions to this thing. It's like, dude, <laughs> only communitarian solutions will solve this. Exactly. We have to work together. Right. And the whole anti-communitarian thinking that runs in certain veins in our society is like, you idiots. The only great things that humans have ever done have always been because we work together. I mean, hell, that's why we live here. Right. The, the differences with the Neanderthal versus the Cro-Magnon, the Neanderthal couldn't build anything bigger than a large family. But the Cro-Magnon could build these larger community sets. And, yeah, you can get a lot more done when you can bring a couple of hundred people to bear. And, and if you ever get to Egypt and you actually see the columns, you see those enormous stone structures, no individual makes things like that. You can't. 
and they would make churn them out for you know each king. Yeah. It was huge. It was, it was vast. It was because we worked together. The moonshot could not have been done by an individual. Hoover Dam couldn't have been done by an individual. These are all communitarian projects. Right. And and we have the example, actually, of the um, the New Deal after the uh, yeah. uh, Great Depression, where there was a way in which uh, people worked together. The government was able to uh, provide work, and gradually the... Uh, uh, economic system became vastly robust, and and of course the war period then changed. Speaking of pauses and, and uh, liminal moments, it changed the relationships of wealth in the world, where lots of wealth was lost, and so people were more equal. Yep. And then we had a booming economy. Yeah, and an economy that included the deal that came as part of the conclusion of that war. With labor, yeah, we bring you along. Because if you look at what happened before that war and into the Depression and the various cycles of boom and bust you have right before that, the Gilded Age, you know that's where an enormous amount of capitalistic rapine squoze all of the value out of people and brought it up to a very high echelon of society. Yeah. That's, uh, well, it doesn't work. It just doesn't. Look, uh, let's be very clear. I I don't actually have a problem with capitalism on its own. I also don't have a problem with fire. I don't have a problem with electricity. Each of them need to be properly contained. You put fire in a box, you put electricity in in insulated wires, and you regulate capitalism so it works for you. Otherwise, 100% of the time, it concentrates all the wealth in few hands, and then the whole thing goes bust. Every one of us has played the game Monopoly. The game Monopoly was originally a socialist teaching tool out in the, the rabid socialist state of Oklahoma, originally. Really? Yeah, really. I didn't know this. And it was designed to teach people, if you keep playing this game, only one person can win. Huh. Huh. And that's not life. That, that's a, that's a, a great that, analogy. That is, that is fascinating. Honestly, I had, I had no idea. So, so, But one of the things that... Um, I wanted to ask you about because when we start talking about forces at this level, uh, that it may be the case that when things relax and the um, uh, we're past the worst of this uh, pandemic situation, that the forces that are unleashed during this time may play out over a longer time period. That 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 I think that there'll be a rush of people immediately trying to kind of go back to the way things were, sure. and to, and to sort of pretend like everything's okay, and yet I think that the that structurally things may actually you know the template may be placed for a very different kind of outcome. We can hope, and I, and I actually yeah. I don't know if we know what that outcome is. I mean, no, certainly I, people I, fear right now that the outcome could be, you know, a return to author, authoritarianism and a kind of, mm-hmm. kind of a, a gilded age fascism, uh, whereas uh, others see a more European style um, uh, uh, democratic, social democratic uh, outcome for the United States. And yeah. I don't think we know. I don't, you know. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> We don't. We don't too know. Many random factors. No, we don't know. But but um, but surely, um, you know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of writing just in the last 
recent days about the an appreciation among more and more people in the United States of the importance of health care. And that's com- this comes on the top of the candidacies of of uh, two, two of the Demo- two in particular of the Democratic candidates, but really all the Democratic candidates for president, um, to to make expanding health care to everyone in the population a priority, mm-hmm. and 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 um, you know there are forces that would that would and do resist that, but the the obviousness of the pandemic. Um, the obvious relevance of the pandemic to this question may have may have some 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 real power to change minds. Well, especially when people are going, you know, people who are taken into the emergency room, the first thing they, you know, out of their word, uh, their mouths are, "How am I going to pay for this?" Yeah. Yeah, that one that, visit vastly expensive. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Bart. Our Bay Area Rapid Transit is a great leveler. You end up sitting next to strange people from time to time. I've sat next to the very poor and the very wealthy from time to time, and I'm I'm pretty good at you know starting a conversation, checking out who they are. Mm-hmm. And I've sat next to some executives who we got to talking about insurance and everything, and they'd actually this guy had done a bunch of research on it because of the way his company worked. Actually, gone to uh, the Haas School of Business at UCB. You see, uh, University of California, Berkeley, and uh, talk to people there, and they have all looked at the numbers. It is very clear: employer-based healthcare is inefficient and ineffective. Yeah. It's massively expensive, and they want it, the employers, because of the power it has over the employees. Oh, they that's know interesting. It. They are quite well aware that that's what it is, and that's why they resist it because. All the other countries that have this have uh, universal health care. Those companies aren't paying for it. That's one of the costs that they don't have to carry in in their expenses. But in America, in the United States, we do this. I would remind people what that actually is. And we don't use this language, but we need to start using the language because it carries the moral charge necessary to combat this evil and that this is a variety of slavery. Those shackles are being put on people so as to bind them to their job. It is not polite. It is not kind. It is, in fact, cruel and evil. And we've socialized it enough so that we all accept this. Uh, Oh, employer-based. Oh, I need a job, so I have health insurance. You need to do life, and you need to have your health care, and then go figure out what you're going to do about employment. If people are unbound in that way, you know, they could just say to their employer, you know, you're not really paying me enough. I'm going to go somewhere else. I have my health care and my spouse has my has health care. My children have health care. They're not dependent on you agreeing. Right. But and that the, changes the dynamic of power in the labor movement. profoundly. It, it does. And, and it also. Um, uh, uh, I think is good for innovation, and more people would be starting small businesses. Oh yeah, I mean, having having had several small businesses across my life, starting as a teenager, I'm really aware the system is set up to prevent small businesses from getting going. The idea of of uh, having um, self employment tax, as it's referred to, is just it's insane. 
it's, it's all the stuff that should be being paid out of general taxes, not out of, oh, oh, so you don't have an employer. Well, we'll just double that value and take it out of your system because they're not paying it for you. Oh, okay, right. Now, that, that I have a hard time thinking of that as just. Uh, and I have to think of that as an effort for those who are in an established position to keep the competition from coming. So, you know, to take this back to a um, uh, a, a spiritual perspective, um, I've I've heard uh, it said sometimes that the a magical work often the the focus on magical work seems to anticipate the energy that gets played out in the culture at large. So, mm-hmm. so for instance, if you look at uh, magical work throughout the 20th century, you'll see early on a consciousness and a sensibility that would could be uh, said to anticipate the environmental movement. Yes. And, and I'm interested, you know, from that point of view, you know, has there been a shift in, you know, in, in the energy that's being drawn together by uh, magical traditions, pagan traditions, do you think that we may be seeing, you know, a, a starting to, uh, like that, that energy kind of injecting in? And, you know, to use an example, our mutual friend Jim Wilson um, describes this period of time as very, very yin. And, you know, it's yin in the sense that we're stopping. It's yin mm-hmm. in the sense that it's to the earth. It's yin in the sense that it's like the earth sort of uh, speaking. It's yin in the sense that the virus kills men more than women. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it, everything about this right now is like a yin moment where that that pause, that loss of ang- you know, that dropping of anxiety, that... And activity, uh, yeah, that silence and that yeah, that motion is is like the yin force, and I can't help but think that that yin force is, in one sense, what the pagan traditions have been, you know, uh, uh, across the world have been kind of invoking for the last uh, fifty years or so. They've all been telling us to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I got to say, in the pagan community, I don't know how well that's being really worked out. Uh, I think it's going through its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the social justice movement has swept into the pagan community and is being profoundly destructive. Yeah, when we, uh, we, we talked about that with Gus, uh, uh, I think last July yeah. on the show. Yeah, and that just, that's been absolutely devastating to the point that I've backed out of doing anything further in the community. Um, I'm staying with my own small group. I'm putting out my small bits of work but I, I'm going to have to wait another five, ten years before uh, people will just take me uh, for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm a middle-aged, white, straight guy. They think you're so privileged. looking at me, and yeah, and therefore I'm bad, evil, and wrong. I can't know anything, and yet I've lived under religious oppression all of my life, and uh, being of uh, not neurotypical. Um, I deal with it every day, people not understanding what I am and what I do. And, and regular abuse, it's really quite astonishing sometimes. So from those tensions are both here, and that's great. Now, oh, you wanted to be an individual. Well, now go home and be an individual on your own, by yourself. See how that works for you. That's part of the dynamic that's rising here. People are going to have all these tensions around that Am I an individual? Am I a member of a group? How do I do solidarity in this thing? 
Yeah. I mean, how do we how, how do we do? I mean, the the other change here that's so dramatic is that um, the act, um, the activities that have stopped pri- are primarily group activities. Yeah. So what's it mean when uh, bodies can't be together with other bodies in large, you know, whether it's a restaurant, a sporting event, a concert, uh, there's all these ritualistic ways in which we have been together. And now that's stopped. And that's a... that's a uh, Well, that's the, that, isn't that the opening for new rituals? Like, yeah. you know, yeah, like, right. like the one um, um, that Sam offered uh, in, I guess it was in the first hour. Yeah. So... Um, so I think I mean I, I think that's a you know a way a, a, a way to I mean we're we're still at the beginning of this and we're responding you know spiritual practitioners in general are responding as they can and there there will be developments I I, I have faith that that you know, that that inspiration um, will. Will fill our our our, our mouths yeah. and uh, motivate our our limbs to move and act and speak in productive ways that we haven't yet seen. But do we, do you, do you think that the the time is going to be one of interest in you know like for young people today are they going to be interested in spiritual practice or are they going to be more interested in um, creating a world i don't i don't i don't know that there has to be a, a, a distinction necessarily in one se- in one sense uh, because the um you know the stop exercise in the, in the Gurdjieff movement. There's a, there's something called the stop exercise, and this is a, a giant stop exercise yeah. that the whole yep. planet is is experiencing. Yeah, the, the stop exercise would be basically in a work community. Uh, a work a work leader would basically everyone's doing various things, and then at some point, randomly, the leader would yell stop, and everyone's supposed to just freeze, literally freeze and, their and body, be completely present to exactly what they were doing, and, and freeze in that in the posture that they were in. Right, and that and that's. Um so 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 we're still we're still processing that as as spiritual practitioners but but you know the stop has different dimensions has economic dimensions it has social dimensions it has psychic dimensions and that's one of the that's one of the uh, that's an area where i think we we still have yet to find you know the question I had uh, they, that I put out there earlier about about what are the psychic dimensions of the planetary stop, of the more localized stops um, that's going on. I think that's um, that'll be interesting as we explore those things. Well, uh, one of the dimensions to this that um, I wanted to come back to <clears throat> is the particularity of this. You know, yes, we're experiencing this plague. Humans do with plagues. We'll do our thing. We'll recover eventually, whatever. But there's a particular moment here that is unique and special, and I don't think it's an accident. Um, it has to do with things that we call, like, karma and justice and all that kind of thing, but it's the Greeks had a particularly special insight into this in, a, in a one very distinct way. Um so I'm I'm marveling at 
the exact nicety with which this crisis is perfectly matching the behavior of Donald Trump. <laughs> everything about what he is is perfectly matched to this crisis, and everything that he does is just making it worse and worse and worse. And it right. stands out all the more worse. And all of his usual tricks are actually making things worse. Yeah. The Greeks have a name for this. It's Nemesis. Ah, uh, yes. And I'd like to offer you a poem around this that uh, speaks to this. Please do. It's simply entitled Nemesis. I wrote it back in Luthnasid, um, uh, um early August 2017. It was not thinking about this, but I find myself reading it a lot lately, and it goes like this. Nemesis. She who we pray that she does not come. We pray there is justice in civil society. We debate and argue. We present facts and reason to claim their relevance. So she does not come. For when reason is chased from the field, when the facts, the stubborn facts are denied their voice, when justice has been brought to her knees by privilege, then she comes. We renounce violence and hand over our vengeance to the cool-headed courts, because in our rage, the innocent die and the guilty all too late. But when all modes of nonviolent response are discarded by courts that protect the privilege, cops that are just a state-sponsored gang, by government that taxes the many and benefits the few, then she comes. Those in civic service are protected because they act not for themselves but for all. But when they only serve the few, there is no protection from the many. She comes, sword-wielding, guns blazing, merciless, death-dealing, she comes. Then she is the only one left standing. Only then does she go. Offerings to thee, Lady Nemesis, of care, of law, of right, of kindness. No other offerings do you accept. Accept ours and do not come. Unless we do not have, then come. May none stand before you. O nemesis, come. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So um, is there a ritual associated with the um, theme of this poem that, that you would leave with uh, our listeners tonight? Well, the peculiarity of Nemesis is that she always directly matches the offense. Mm. Her punishment is always rightly laid upon the one who caused it to happen in the first place, who, who did the horrible thing, who was the tyrant, who was the abuser. Mm. The abuser receives back their abuse. The tyrant receives back their tyranny an exacting measure. And here, on the national scale, this guy, I've known him since I was a 16-year-old. This is a New York... I, I, I feel so much for New York. <laughs> I, I grew up there. That was, that's my birth city. And and knowing Donald Trump was a thing that you did in New York. You knew about this schmuck. <laughs> and uh, all he did was horror. And he is who we use as young men, as an example of what it is to be not a man. 
He's the classic example of somebody who never made it to adulthood. Right, right. And behaves like it. And now we have him as our chief executive. That was dumb. But here we are. This is the one person. He is what the Greeks would call idiotes. It's a very specific word. We use it as a person of low intelligence or just stupid or something like that. That's not what it meant in the Greek. It meant a person who refused to work in society, to participate in the demos, in the in the polite, in in the in the city's administration, to do the hard work of trying to run the place. Uh, an idiot was a person who only sought their own wealth and advantage under all circumstances and gave not a damn about anybody else. I would now, if I was building a dictionary, I'd use his picture next to that word as an example. <laughs> yes. So what is it? So what is he getting? He's getting his nemesis. He's getting. He's calling to him that same wrath by the very powers that he is using to harm people. They're now coming for him. Well, but it's more than just him. It's also the the, the people you were speaking of in the first hour, who are going to uh, open up America again rallies and congregating together to provide a perfect uh, context of transmission for the pandemic virus. Yes, they are invoking their own nemesis. They're invoking their own right. opposition in the world by doing the stupid thing. I don't, I was just like, why would you do that? Don't you understand? No, they not only under, don't understand, they don't know and they don't believe. And they think that their belief Oh, no, it can't really be this thing, uh, is sufficient. Well, I don't think the coronavirus gives a damn what anybody believes. Right. That, well, that, that makes it a particular nemesis because um, uh, our president is, uh, like, like so many people in our society now, believe that they can think away anything. Because and it, it's a it's a consequence of not having had real strife or real real uh, conflict. It, it, it's it's a it's an odd kind real, of real feedback from the universe. Yeah, and yeah. and so this may this may be the beginning of real feedback from the universe, but it's also impacting lots of people, you know. And that that's but that may in itself be. Uh, again, a, a kind of response that drives us towards the only way out, which is, as you said, that we have to be together. We have to have a network of mutual support. Yep. And that I mean, it's possible. We have to figure out a way of governing ourselves as a planet. This kind of problem is, in fact, global. Yeah. There's no way around it. And there's a bunch of other problems we're facing that if we tried to do them on our own, well, we can't solve them. I mean, we even know that, like, climate change. Yeah, if you do everything you can, you can reduce your carbon footprint by 10 20%. That's not enough. Right. It's the big systemic stuff that we have to talk to each other. It's like, okay, how are we going to solve these things? We can. But we have to do it together. Well, you're uh, um, reminding me um, what, you just, what you just said, that... Um, our, our guest next week is someone, you know, as Stuart said, it's it's become easier to get guests for the show suddenly because they have fewer obstacles in their schedules to uh, uh, having conversations with us. So I've been trying to get uh, a guy named uh, Norman Fisher, 
Zen teacher in San Francisco, um, an author, uh, on the show to talk about the book he that came out of his that came out uh, uh, last year, and the title is "The World Could Be Otherwise: Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path." So, so as we as we come towards a um, conclusion here, I'm I'm wondering if if the word imagination um, resonates for you as part of the response that you would offer spiritual practitioners and 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 non practitioners people who might who might find resonance with um, the predicament. Um, uh, that we're experiencing in finding new ways to come together. How does how does imagination fit into that? Do you think? I would think it's key because until it is imagined, it never gets made. Uh, and I can draw directly out of the traditional teachings of the Golden Dawn. All magic is a combination of imagination and will. First, mm-hmm. you got to imagine it, which gives us it its aim, and then your will empowers it to come into being. We have to imagine a better world. We have to imagine a, a better future. If we don't, it's not going to happen automatically. There is no automaticity at this level. Right. We have to be responsible. We have to become become the fully adult beings who say, if I get it wrong, people die. What can I do to make this work? And uh, ecosystems die as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, people, four-legged Well, if if we get this one right, um, then it will be a will perhaps be a first step to getting the bigger the bigger crisis that uh, uh, of the climate uh, right, which is going to demand a uh, a large uh, systemic change, as you said, and a um, uh, a level of cooperation we don't have yet. I think this is the warning. Yeah. Hi. See, I'm giving you a chance to stop for a minute, think over what you're doing, reconsider, and, um, yeah, you can do this. And if we catch the message, we'll do it. Yeah, I, 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 I grew up with Star Trek. I'm hoping for that future, not so much the Mad Max future or uh, Blade Runner or or the long list of science fiction I can go through like no no I don't want exactly. any of those give me Star Trek any day of the week there's enough problems or there ja- I'll deal with those problems or Japanese monster movies oh god yeah, yeah the recent uh, Corona uh, yeah oh, uh, oh yeah yeah oh god I saw that recently I was like wow okay they bust everything up and life comes up after yeah, but yeah. there's a lot of dead first. Well, that is uh, that is uh, one one part of the uh, natural way: destruction followed by regeneration. Yep, yep, very natural. Very much the way things work. Um, I think there are some of our historical traditions make us think that it, our success is inevitable. Inevitable. Mm. Tool makers don't tend to survive. We usually get ahead of our skis. We make the tools that destroy us, and then we go and destroy ourselves in our world. The planet is fine. The planet's going to have a mild fever. She'll get over it in a couple thousand years, and life will go on without us. Or we can fly. 
yeah. we can make it work. It's so within our grasp. But And part of it is, unless we have this challenge, will we stop enough to think through the challenge and decide to do differently? Yeah. But I think, I think the, the key, you know, to kind of close out this discussion is that a f- affirmative imagination and the will to bring it into being is the way we should be approaching this, not not fighting, you know, not, not making wrong another way, uh, because as soon as you make another way wrong, you're validating the other way. You, you, you're, you're kind of locked in this dialectic, but to simply to, to sweep what's been off the table and say, what can we, what do we want to create now? Yep. And that 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 can be the focus of our both our spiritual work, our imaginative work, and our work in the world. We can choose different and make beautiful. Yeah. Well, those are good words uh, to end by. Yeah. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to reconnect with you and to uh, uh, share this time. It's been uh, a, uh, a, a wonderful reflection on our current situation. And we've even had our dose of, doses of humor along yes, the way. Yes, we have. <laughs> Indeed. Stuart and Rob, thank you so much for inviting me to the Mystical Positivist again. It's always a great pleasure to get to. Uh, join with you and your audience, and what wonderful conversations. They're always so stimulating, and they enrich my heart greatly. So thank you so very, very much for having me. Well, well thank, thank you. you. That's very sweet, and uh, uh, it's mutual. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking by telephone with Sam Webster, Ph.D., a Master of Divinity, and Mage. Sam hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, U.K., studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He is the author of Tantric Thelema, and the history of theodry from Yamblicus to the Golden Dawn. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we'll feature a conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher about his 2019 book, The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. More prescient than Fisher could have known when he wrote it, this book offers an imaginative approach to spiritual practice in difficult times through the Buddhist teaching of the six paramitas, or perfections, qualities that lead to kindness, wisdom, and an awakened life. Fisher points out that in frightening times, we wish the world could be otherwise. With a touch of imagination, it can be. Imagination helps us see what's hidden, and it shape-shifts reality's roiling, twisting waves in this inspiring reframe of a classic Buddhist teaching. Zen teacher Norman Fisher writes that the paramitas are six perfections, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, joyful effort, meditation, and understanding, can help us reconfigure the world we live in, ranging from our everyday concerns about relationships, ethics, and consumption, to our artistic inspirations and broadest human learnings, excuse me, broadest human yearnings, 
Fisher depicts imaginative spiritual practice as a necessary resource for our troubled times. Zoketsu Norman Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shunru Suzuki. He's a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. Fisher served as co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center from 1995 to 2000, after which he founded the Everyday Zen Foundation in 2000, a network of Buddhist practice groups and related projects in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. He's published more than 25 books of poetry and nonfiction, as well as numerous poems, essays, and articles in Buddhist magazines and poetry journals. We spoke with Fisher previously on The Mystical Positivist about an earlier book, Training in Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. Tune in for that show on Saturday, April 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Mondo Head, featuring music composed in collaboration by Kodo, Mickey Hart, and others. This track is called Ocasa Prayer. Enjoy.
Yeah.